Welcome to Byline. I'm Rick Howlett. Experts on congressional ethics say a financial partnership between a Kentucky congressman and a nationally known lobbyist raises some serious questions about the co-mingling of legislative and personal agendas. The Kentucky Center for Investigative Reporting's R.G. Dunlop has been looking into the 2003 purchase of some high-value real estate made by 1st District Republican Congressman Ed Whitfield, along with his wife Connie Harriman Whitfield and lobbyist Juanita Dugan. And uh, R.G. Dunlop joins us now to talk about his investigation. Welcome back to the program. Thanks, Rick. Nice to be here. First of all, in addition to their business relationship, uh, I should make clear that the Whitfields and Ms. Dugan uh, have been personal friends, right? That's correct. Uh, Ms. Harriman Whitfield and Ms. Dugan uh, were... Uh, co-workers uh, back in the first Bush administration, uh, George H.W. Bush in the late 1980s, been friends ever since. Ms. Dugan told me that she attended uh, Ms. Harriman Whitfield's uh, wedding with the congressman in 1990, so they go back uh, some 25 years. So where exactly is this property, and why did they buy it? Uh, the property is in the Greenbrier Estate uh, in West Virginia, upscale resort uh, in southern West Virginia. Uh, Ms. Dugan told me they bought it because uh, she and the Whitfields hoped to uh, build a vacation home there at some point uh, after the purchase in early 2003. Uh, That didn't work out ultimately because uh, Ms. Dugan's uh, son became seriously ill several years ago and then there was the financial downturn um, and uh, they eventually sold the property last December. Now, what do House or congressional ethics rules say, or are there any rules uh, regarding uh, such financial relationships with lobbyists? Well, there is no explicit rule about whether or not a member of Congress should be in a personal business relationship with a lobbyist. There's a lot of general talk about how uh, members should conduct themselves uh, and that there should be no benefit accruing to a member from a lobbyist, but in terms of any prohibition on that sort of a relationship, there is none. And uh, Juanita Dugan has been a a major player in the lobbying business over the years, correct? That's correct. Going back to the 1990s, early 1990s, she has either been uh, an executive with national trade associations, wine and spirits, forest and paper, uh, food processing, or uh, she was an employee uh, in and lobbyist for the tobacco industry in the mid-90s. And uh, in the past five years, until July 1, she was with a major Washington, D.C. lobbying and law firm uh, where she had a number of uh, high-profile clients. So some of her clients would have lobbied the congressman or, uh, or members of his uh, various committees and, and even contributed to his election campaign. Well, they certainly contributed money to his election campaigns over the years. Uh, our reporting showed that um, in the past two decades, uh, they had given the congressman uh, in excess of $300,000 while Ms. Dugan was associated with those particular interests. And they also had issues before the committee on which um, uh, Congressman Whitfield is a, uh, a senior member in the subcommittee that he chairs. So there was a lot of interaction there as well between those lobbying interests and uh, the congressman. I guess this would be hard to gauge, but uh, was there any indication that uh, the congressman's vote was influenced by his relationship with her? Well, you're right. It is hard to gauge. Uh, there are some uh, uh, interesting, if coincidental, uh, events, such as he gets money from one of these interests and then he votes a certain way. And one of the associations uh, f- with which Ms. Dugan previously was uh, 
uh, an official has on its website a listing of a, a dozen or so votes uh, of interest to them, and the congressman was uh, with them on each occasion. So can you prove the, the uh, quid pro quo? No, but there are some interesting possibilities. We do have audio with some of the players in, in this, but not Congressman Whitfield. You approached him uh, many times about this uh, land deal, and he declined to comment, right? That's correct. Uh, we, we made a number of efforts to reach uh, him through his congressional office in Washington. Finally, we're told he wasn't interested. Okay, we do have uh, some of your conversation with Connie Harriman Whitfield, and I understand this was uh, a very brief conversation, but uh, let, let's listen to what she had to say. Why don't you spend your time on something that people actually care about? Do you think that every time you guys write an article about um, untoward dealings or what you perceive to be untoward dealings about a member of Congress or a lobbyist, that people care anymore? They don't care. Well, <laughs> I think she made herself pretty clear about that, but uh, did she have anything else to say? Uh, not really. Uh, she prefaced those remarks with a couple about uh, some uh, prior uh, adverse publicity she and uh, the congressman have received uh, with respect to their mutual interests in uh, legislation pertaining to horses. Ms. Herman Whitfield is a lobbyist with the Humane Society of the United States, which has championed some legislation that uh, Congressman Whitfield also has supported. The Humane Society has been a donor to him, and that relationship uh, has raised some questions in public about the propriety of his involvement in an issue that his wife also is uh, uh, intimately involved in. Now, you had a more detailed uh, conversation with Juanita Dugan about, about the deal. Correct. And she basically denied uh, any impropriety. She readily acknowledged the business deal in West Virginia. Uh, she said she had never lobbied uh, Congressman Whitfield for any of her clients um, and that uh, uh, there was no impropriety uh, as far as she was concerned. And we, let's listen to what she had to say. I went to extra lengths to make sure that there was no conflict of interest between Ed Whitfield and myself. I went to great lengths to do that. Um, I, I can assure you that the transaction was 50-50, and it was based on a close personal relationship that preceded his arrival in Congress. And this 50-50 ratio is noteworthy because something any, any more than that could be construed as, as a gift. It is noteworthy uh, because, for that very reason, we, we don't know who paid what with respect to the the, the loan payment. This was a $202,000, actually $268,000 loan for a $202,000 piece of property. We don't know who made, if anyone made the mortgage payments. We don't know who paid for sure the property taxes. There are some records that show property taxes in one year were paid more by the congressman, another year more by Ms. Dugan. So whether it was in fact 50-50 is hard to determine, and we asked her to provide us with records that would show uh, how exactly these expenses were apportioned between them, and she declined to do that. Now, you also spoke to some experts on congressional ethics, including uh, one uh, well-known uh, expert now who uh, spent some time in prison uh, because of his actions as a former lobbyist, Jack Abramoff. Correct. Um, Mr. Abramoff uh, did serve some time for transgressions associated with his lobbying efforts uh, a decade or so ago. He emerged from prison uh, repentant and, and uh, bent on reforming the rules that he broke, and he's now pretty steadfast in his belief that relationships of the sort uh, between Ms. Dugan and the congressman should not exist. And let's hear what he had to say. A public servant, while serving the public, uh, should not be engaged in business activities 
And we have people who are asking that public servant to perform public actions in their behalf, whether they agree with them or don't agree with them. Now, one thing we should note is uh, Ms. Dugan is no longer a lobbyist. She, re- she recently left the, uh, the industry. That's correct. On July 1, she left uh, the lobbying law firm in Washington, where she'd worked for about three years, and she's now head of another trade association. Now, Congressman Whitfield has kept a pretty low profile. He's been in office, what, 20 years now, and he's kept a pretty low profile. Have there been any other instances uh, where his actions have, have raised any ethical red flags? Well, the uh, the primary uh, other instance is the one I alluded to earlier involving his support for uh, legislation uh, that the Humane Society is also advocating. Um, his defense is, uh, I, I supported these issues for years, even back to the time when I was, before I was married to um, uh, Ms. Harriman Whitfield. And uh, he basically said, uh, told Politico last year, if anybody doesn't like it, they can file a complaint against me. Okay. You can read R.G. Dunlop's full report on uh, Congressman Whitfield's uh, land deal at the Kentucky Center for Investigative Reporting website. It's at kycir.org, or you can go to wfpl.org. R.G. Dunlop, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Rick. This is Byline on WFPL. Governor Steve Bashir has signed an order to plug a $91 million hole in Kentucky's $9.5 billion state budget. Officials announced the shortfall earlier this month, and joining us by phone to tell us how all this will work and who is affected is Kentucky Public Radio's Jonathan Meter. Jonathan, welcome back to the program. Hey, Rick. Good to have you. So so why is there a shortfall? Is there is there one particular reason? Well, there, were, there are a couple of factors driving this, but primarily the $90.9 million shortfall has been caused by a decline in income taxes, and it's specific to capital gains taxes. And capital gains are essentially, if you have money in investment, say the stock market, uh, you collect dividends or returns on that, that's a capital gain. It's the primary reason uh, by which the nation's wealthiest earn their income in the country. And I won't get too wonky because this kind of stuff is extremely wonky, but what happened was uh, in 2012, the rich were anticipating a raise in capital gains rates, uh, the taxes on them, from 15 to about 20%. So they sold a bunch of their assets, and that caused a spike uh, in 2013 in the income related to these capital gains. And state forecasters across the country, uh, Kentucky is not uh, um, the only state to have sort of – been unable to foresee that this was essentially a one-time occurrence for the rich trying to avoid these higher rates. Uh, so they didn't anticipate, they, they, thought, they thought it would happen again, and it did not. So that, that was about $63 million in income taxes that, that drove that $90.9 million figure. And this gap comes, the discovery of this gap uh, comes at a, at a time, I guess, when a lot of this money has been spent. So the governor's been looking to uh, transfer some money uh, in existing accounts, right? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, the bulk of the savings come from about $50 million in transfers and in, in what are called uh, 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 fund transfers. Essentially, these are largely derived from, say, if, if you're a barber or a hairdresser or even a doctor, you have to get a license in order to practice your trade in Kentucky and as well as in other states. And there are fees associated with that. And these, these uh, licensure groups uh, it basically, the, the governor, it's not just the governor of the legislature, uh, when they uh, approve the budget, um, they'll sort of skim from these licensure fees and transfer them around to wherever, you know, there's a, if there's a hole in the boat, they'll use it to plug the hole. And Bashir's own proposal had about $370 million 
of, of these fund transfers in his initial budget proposal. I believe the actual budget that was passed is somewhat similar to that. So this is just an additional $50 million in these fund transfers that are used to plug that up. Uh, $21 million uh, was transferred from the Rainy Day Fund. It's now at about $77 million. <clears throat> And essentially that's what the, the Rainy Day Fund is there for, um, to sort of uh, plug up these holes in, in the event of a shortfall. And about $15 million uh, comes from uh, unspent appropriations, um, now, to sort of to put this in perspective, uh, $90.9 million uh, is about less than 1%, according to the state budget uh, office. Um, essentially, it's uh, you've got $20 billion over the next two years that Kentucky's going to be spending. So, in perspective, it's not that much, but what, what's interesting are these fund transfers. Uh, there are members of both parties that sort of criticize this practice um, after the year it made an announcement that he was going to issue this order to, to plug the shortfall. House Minority Floor Leader Jeff Hoover criticized it, calling it robbing Peter to pay Paul. But there are other Democrats that criticize this practice. So it's an unsustainable way for state government to balance its coffers in the absence of any sort of regularly recurring revenue. But the governor did announce some budget cuts, not uh, nothing really, really big, I don't guess. But uh, we're, we're not going to see any reduction in, in, in basic services, education, law enforcement, that sort of thing? No, no. Um, the budget that was passed had about a 5% uh, reduction for multiple, numerous state agencies, um, executive branch, as well as, uh, uh, you know, the Council on Post-Secondary Education, for example, which got... Uh, I believe about a $400,000 thereabout cut, according to this new order. It was already cut. Uh, that cut doesn't amount to a whole lot more. Uh, military affairs was cut by about, I think, $350,000 or thereabout. So it, the, they, they add up. I think I think the total for like state agencies is about $3 million, but it's spread across so many that have already been cut. I think it's just sort of, you know, pull, pulling the knife out of the back just by an inch a little bit. Um so it's not gonna it's not gonna affect anything any more than the current budget already did, more or less. And I see where the governor's office pointed out this was the fourteenth time that uh, Bashir has issued a budget reduction order since he since he took office first took office. Yeah, fourteenth uh, time uh, totaling um, reductions balances uh, of about one point seven billion dollars. There was um, I think that the, the speculation was that if the shortfall was much higher, there would have been a special session. Uh, obviously, that's not going to happen now. Um, it, it remains to be seen, however, um, how it's going to be. It's already being employed in terms of this fall's House, house races. Uh, as aforementioned, uh, Representative Hoover sort of tying it into the fact that the legislature did not take up tax reform, uh, which members of both parties, progressives and conservatives, sort of see as the way forward to preventing these kind of juggling acts, these regularly occurring juggling acts in the state budget from occurring. But again, um, with the House races this fall and then in 2015, the governor's race, it seems like Kentucky is perpetually uh, suffering from election year items in which we're not going to sort of deal with these kind of systemic problems, at least in terms of our finances. And as you touched on a minute ago, Republicans are making a political hay out of this, and uh, we'll probably hear some of this uh, rhetoric coming up next month at Fancy Farm. Oh, absolutely. Uh, the... Um, Kentucky chapter of Americans for Prosperity is um, they're sort of gearing up to be involved in this fall's house races and beyond. And their state director uh, issued a statement criticizing the move along similar lines uh, as per Representative Hoover. Um, but again, this is something that 
both parties are kind of to blame for whenever they get together and craft these budgets. They rely heavily upon non-recurring sources of revenue to, again, um, it's not just Democrats that are robbing Peter to pay Paul. So, uh, But, yeah, Fancy Farm will be the, the perfect, most nuanced forum for this kind of debate to happen, absolutely. Jonathan Meter covers state government for Kentucky Public Radio, the network that includes uh, WFPL. Jonathan, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Rick. We'll be back with more in a moment. This is Byline on WFPL. Welcome back to Byline on WFPL. I'm Rick Heldett. The Louisville Metro Council Democratic Caucus has reprimanded Councilman Dan Johnson's aide, an aide to uh, Councilman Johnson, for making disparaging comments about another council member. That's according to documents obtained by WFPL's Philip M. Bailey, who reported the story this week and joins us now. Welcome back, Philip. Hey, Rick. So uh, this involves uh, legislative aide Brian Matthews, whom we've talked about in, in previous programs. We'll get to that in a moment. But uh, over remarks aimed at Councilman David James. Yes, the uh, the complaint was filed by Councilman James back in June. Uh, and, and if you remember earlier this year, we, we documented a series of stories where Democrats were talking about changing their caucus rules uh, after an accusation had surfaced uh, pointing at Councilman James, actually, and his aide that turned out not to be really true at all. It was more hearsay. But the question was, you know, if aides are working or saying disparaging things about incumbent members uh, and what should happen to not only that aide, uh, but the but the council member that they work for. Well, Councilman Johnson found a series or different postings to Twitter, Facebook and Instagram where uh, Brian Matthews, who is also Jefferson County Judge Executive, uh, Matthews making comments either referencing or directly at uh, Councilman James uh, and these number of, of tweets and and Facebook postings and et cetera were sent to the caucus's uh, personnel committee, which convened because Councilman Johnson is their vice chair. Uh, So they rendered a decision uh, last month uh, basically reprimanding uh, Brian Matthews for disparaging Councilman James. Now, what sort of action can the committee take or or has it taken any action? Well, well, they recommended or or ordered, I guess, Councilman Johnson to uh, create a corrective action plan to, to forbid Mr. Matthews from using social networking in that way. Uh, and they, they said in their memorandum, their June 24th memorandum, uh, that, that that could face a number of penalties, whether a written warning, a verbal warning, or maybe even termination. Uh, we've asked to see uh, the response. Uh, Councilman Johnson declined to provide that response to WFPL uh, in regards to what uh, he did say or what his corrective action plan was. Uh, Councilwoman Vicki Aubrey Welch, who's a Democratic caucus chair, uh, did not provide that response as well, saying that the matter is closed uh, and that the personnel committee has done what it, it should have done uh, in that matter. Now, this is the uh, latest in a string, really, of controversies uh, involving uh, Mr. Matthews since, since his hiring by Councilman Johnson. Yeah, the, the first, uh, obviously, was the question of whether or not Mr. Matthews could even be Councilman Johnson's aide, given that he is uh, serving in uh, another capacity as Jefferson County Judge Executive, even though that position is pretty much powerless uh, post-merger. Uh, it doesn't have any real duties. Uh, it still is a, a considered a county position. Uh, the, the Jefferson County Attorney's Office did render an opinion in regards to whether those are conflicting positions for uh, Mr. Matthews. However, uh, the County Attorney's Office says because of attorney-client privilege, they will not give us a copy of that uh, opinion. Councilman Johnson, we asked him to release that. He has uh, declined, vehemently declined, to provide WFPL with that documentation. Uh, he did indicate that he had 
gone to uh, the Commonwealth Attorney's Office or is seeking to go to the Commonwealth Attorney's Office uh, for a, a follow-up opinion, which people can draw from their conclusions there, whether maybe the, the initial opinion wasn't one that he wanted to hear. Um, and then, of course, the other story involving, involving Mr. Matthews is this allegation uh, that his, at his previous employer, the Kling Center, which is a senior community center in Councilman James's district, uh, employers there allege that Mr. Matthews was fired for saying the N-word. Um, so these two different controversies, and I know members of the Justice Resource Center have tried to meet with or have met with Councilman Johnson in, re- in this regard on this matter. Uh, so those string of controversies come uh, are pretty much still out there in the air or in the political bloodstream while this issue of the, the Democrats stepping up, at least their personnel committee, and saying that Mr. Matthews did, in fact, uh, uh, disparage Councilman James uh, directly. Some developments this week. I'm uh, moving on to another topic in the uh, U.S. Uh, Senate race. Senator College has stepped up and offered to host uh, a, uh, a debate with uh, Senator McConnell and his challenger, Democratic challenger Allison Lundergan Grimes, uh, sometime in September. Yes, uh, Senator College, which everyone knows uh, has gotten national recognition for hosting two vice presidential debates in 2000 and most recently uh, in 2000, uh, 2012. Uh, Senator College probably, if, if I think it's pretty safe to say that if Center College can't get Allison Lundigan Grimes and Mitch McConnell <laughs> together, probably no one can. Yeah. Uh, the two campaigns have been jousting via press release and the media over uh, these debates. They really can't agree on dates or formats. I know McConnell has said he's going to be at a debate in August at the Kentucky Farm Bureau. Uh, Grimes has agreed to be uh, at one in October with Kentucky Education Television. Uh, but they, they really can't agree pretty much on anything, which pretty much is part of the course for the campaign outside of coal. Um, Initially, you know, McConnell was the one who issued the first challenge, saying he wanted these Lincoln-Douglas-style uh, debates. Uh, his caveats were he wanted them to take place over the summer. Uh, he didn't want an audience, no notes, no moderator, uh, just the two candidates going back and forth. Uh, Grimes said, uh, let's have something after Labor Day where more people are paying attention to the race. Uh, she wanted to have an audience to have actual Kentuckians participate. Uh, so they haven't really been able to get together on that. Center College, it seems that the format they are proposing would favor Grimes a little bit more in, in, in the sense of what she wanted and that it would take place in September after Labor Day. Uh, it would involve an audience and a moderator, uh, two moderators, I believe, from Wave 3. Uh, Center College is partnering with AARP of Kentucky and Wave to put this on. And uh, it looks like a lot of the details have already been worked out without the, <laughs> without the agreement of the campaigns to take part. So, I mean, it would, all they would do is say yes, and they could really get it going. That seems the best way to do it. Um, yeah. this, uh, I talked to a, a spokesperson or an official from Center College, Richard Trollinger, and he said, you know, look, they hope that Center's prestige nationally, you know, pressures Grimes and McConnell to agree to this, that if we can put on a, pres- a vice presidential debate – uh, which is heavily negotiated, which is probably the most mm-hmm. fierce campaign in the world, uh, certainly were good enough to put on a U.S. Senate race and get Senator McConnell and Secretary Grimes in the same room where actual voters can hear them, not sound bites, not ads, not commercials, not press releases, not campaign spokespeople or managers. Uh, let's have the actual candidates before Kentucky if this race is as important as everyone says it is. And very quickly, Senator wanted to have this uh, after September 1st in order to allow for students to be on campus. They want students to participate. Uh, It'll be after Fancy Farm. It'll be September when a lot of people are paying attention. So like I said, I think that whichever campaign blinks first on the center proposal may lose a lot of credibility given the fact that center is known not just in Kentucky but nationally as the place, the center, (laughs) to have debates. 
All right. Philip M. Bailey is WFPL's political editor. Philip, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Rick. And we'll be back with more in a moment. Actually, we're moving to our next uh, segment right now. We did the break already. General Electric is reportedly again looking to sell its Louisville-based appliance business. Citing people familiar with the matter, Bloomberg reported this week that GE is in talks with potential acquirers about selling the appliance division. GE officials are not commenting publicly on the Bloomberg report, which was co-written by David Welch, but he spoke to us earlier from New York and begins by telling us that the talks appear to be serious. They are basically looking at uh, potential bidders, talking to some of them. You know, they've, they've all got advisors lined up uh, from the big investment banks to try to see if, uh, if a deal can be done. So why is there renewed interest now by GE in, in selling off its appliance business? Well, earlier this year, the CEO, Jeff Immelt, said that he wanted to sell about $4 billion worth of businesses. And what he's been trying to do at GE uh, ever since uh, you know, the, the bad days of the financial crisis and, and uh, the recession have kind of gone away is really refocused GE on a lot of their industrial businesses. And... Uh, you know they've they've looked at whether or not they should sell lighting, for example. They're going to keep it, and uh, you know this is one that um, you know they they think they can get some good money for, and they're they're not really in a great position there. They're number three in the market behind Whirlpool and Sweden's Electrolux, and so you know it's been a long-standing GE thing to try to be number one or number two in every market, and uh, and either try to buy or grow your way into those positions if you're not, or sell out if you can't get there. Does there appear to be any serious contenders uh, to buy the company, or maybe those that you just mentioned, or others at this point? We're hearing there is interest, uh, but you do have to keep into perspective that a business like this, there aren't that many potential players who would want to buy it. Uh, not because it's a bad business, but you know, it's got to be somebody who wants to be in the appliance business. And it's fairly well consolidated. Uh, six or seven years ago, Whirlpool uh, bought Maytag. They're the number one player in the U.S. with 30-something percent of the market. Uh, Electrolux is number two. GE is number three. Could could Whirlpool go after it? Possibly, but they might have antitrust issues there. Once you start to get closer to 50% market share, the government starts to raise eyebrows. Electrolux maybe could. Uh, the other one that's a possibility, uh, and this is me speculating, I don't know that they're bidding, but is Mabe, which is Mexican appliance producer, and GE and Mabe have a joint venture to produce appliances. So there's a relationship there, and uh, maybe they could take that to the the next step by selling it to Mabe. What's the estimated worth of the appliance business? You know, we're hearing one and a half to two and a half billion, which for a unit that size is quite a range. But we don't have we don't have great figures on it in terms of what the financial performance is because we've sort of seen it I've talked about embedded with the electronics business and having eight billion in revenue total with that and, and so we don't know exactly what the, the earnings for that business uh, as a separate unit are. But that's that's roughly what you're looking at. Well, Appliance Park, as you well know, has become part of Louisville's fabric. Been here for 61 years. Generations of families have worked there, learned to trade there. And uh, talk of a sale is generating some uh, anxiety. Um, do you see any movement on this in the near future? Well, these deals, um, if, if they do find a serious bidder and they get into serious negotiations, uh, and, and I think they're fairly far along and looking for somebody, you know, it can take you know many months to happen, and sometimes deals fall apart. When you're looking at industrial units, industrial deals do fall apart with some frequency, just because there usually aren't that many players uh, who who could actually buy the thing. It's it's not like if uh, 
you know, you were selling, uh, you know, a, a, a fashion retailer, you know, private equity firms uh, like to buy those if they're struggling and, and try to turn them around. And so you can have five, six private equity firms interested, plus maybe some other retailers. It's not that sort of thing. It's a small handful. So, uh, you know, you have to find somebody who uh, wants to do the deal, then they have to agree to a price. And, you know, the government uh, has to pass their wand over the whole thing. So there's, there's a decent likelihood, but there are also a lot of hurdles that they're going to need to clear to get it done. Now, what does the appliance business encompass? There's, of course, Louisville's Appliance Park here, but there are there other operations around the world? Uh, they've got, I'm trying to think where else they actually manufacture uh, different pieces. And uh, yeah, I'm not sure the entire layout of mm-hmm. it, but it's, it's a pretty sizable unit. And now in terms of GE, it's not that big. It's actually, uh, you know, if you're looking at Less than eight billion in revenue in a company that does more than 140 billion a year. It's uh, it's big. I know it's big in in, in the Louisville area, and uh, it's big within its own industry. But as, as far as being a piece of GE, it's fairly small. Now there was talk about uh, six years ago of GE selling or uh, spinning off the appliance business. Does this um, this news appear to be, or this uh, possibility appear to be, more serious now than it was back then? Yeah, and remember, uh, that one obviously didn't work out. They hired Goldman Sachs to try to find a buyer. And now that was in 2008, tough economy back then, so it's tougher to get companies to cut a big check. But uh, they they tried to get it done and couldn't. So, you know, the renewed interest here is the economy's a little better, so maybe the buyers uh, or, you know, potential bidders would have more confidence to do the deal. Plus, GE just finished a big deal, uh, or at least they've signed one to buy Alstom, which is a big power company in France. And once they got that done, they kind of have, I think, more clarity on what they want to do next. And, and so they can go and, and kind of focus on selling some of these smaller pieces that ML has talked about uh, selling off. All right. David Welch is a staff writer at Bloomberg. David, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. And this is Byline on WFPL. People with driver's licenses from Kentucky and nine other states may soon have to show a passport or some other form of identification to comply with a federal law tightening security across the country. Under the Real ID Act of 2005, some of the ID standards are expected to, are scheduled to go into effect as early as next week at federal facilities. WFPL's Jake Ryan has been covering the story and joins us to talk about it. Hi, Jake. Hello, Rick. So uh, Kentucky driver's licenses are apparently out of compliance with uh, some of the rules set down in this uh, Real ID Act. Uh, what do the driver's licenses lack that they, they're supposed to have? It's not the licenses that lack anything, Rick. It's the process that residents go through to get the driver's licenses. Mm-hmm. Are, there are security measures that aren't in place that the 141 circuit court clerks are working to put in place so that these driver licenses have the security measures that, that adhere to this 2005 Real ID Act. Those measures are things like um, the security of, of not being able to get over the counter and the way that you access the computer programs that print out these driver licenses. In 2012, the driver licenses uh, process was, was reworked a little bit. So the licenses that, that will be issued when they are compliant will look the exact same as they did post-2012. The only difference is there will be a little gold star in the top right-hand corner that kind of tells other states that Kentucky is, a, is compliant to the rule. 
So there's nothing on the license itself when you look at it that that prevents you from getting into a federal building, but the way the way the license is issued now. That's right, that and and right now those 141 uh, circuit court clerks are going through a security assessment process to kind of figure out what they're going to need, uh, the process that, and the costs that are associated with those processes of setting up that security. It's it's a little bit more difficult for Kentucky to do this because we don't have a general DMV system. We have the mm-hmm. circuit court clerk, so there's a lot of steps to go into getting this compliancy. And there and there seems to be some confusion about what's what's going to happen starting on uh, July 21st, I believe, that some federal buildings may be may uh, require uh, some other form of ID. That's right. That's Monday, and uh, it goes into effect. But the Kentucky Transportation uh, Cabinet is issuing or is applying for an extension. So if this is approved by the Department of Homeland Security, which is hopeful that it will be, and it's looking positive that it will be, that means that uh, Kentucky residents will still be able to get into federal buildings across the nation with the driver licenses that they have. Now, that is, of course, pending the approval of the extension that uh, will last, I think, until October. Now, this could ultimately, if, if uh, things aren't uh, nailed down here, affect air travel and things like that. Yes, uh, 2016, it comes into play with commercial airline travel. That means you, if, you know, for some reason the compliance isn't met by then, then residents will have issues getting onto airplanes in 2016. All right, another story you covered this week. There was a demonstration at a uh, Metro Housing Authority meeting as uh, residents of public housing, some of these residents are speaking out against a uh, rent reform study being considered here. Uh, some are calling this a social experiment on poor African-American women. What's what's going on with that? That's right, Rick. The rent reform study is, is, is a program that's sponsored by the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. And it basically takes, in Louisville, it's going to look at taking 1,000 residents of uh, the public housing. It's going to select them at random and will adjust the way they pay rent. Instead of um, instead of factoring in things like child care deductions, it's going to take the residents' annual gross income and figure out rent that way. Also, it will be instituting a $75 minimum rent payment. Uh, right now, some residents don't pay that much for rent, so it could be burdensome to some residents with uh, low economic uh, capabilities. The rent program is meeting a lot of backlash because the the people that are chosen at random, they won't have the option of opting out of the test or, or, or the experiment, the study. And so they're going to be a they're going to be forced into this. And a lot of people are saying that those those child care deductions that many people that live in these buildings depend on aren't going to be there. So that's going to be more money out of pocket to care for their children. And it could, you know, force them to take uh, less safe, cheaper ways to, to care for the kids. Now this this is still under consideration. It hasn't been uh, implemented yet. Uh, any any clue as to when the, the authority will vote on it? No. Uh, Tim Barry, the executive director of Louisville Metro Housing Authority, said uh, that they're going to push back. They're going to wait to, to get as much community input as they can on this issue. The meeting earlier this week, it was it was a heated discussion. People compared the uh, the test to the Tuskegee experiments and Jim Crow laws and, and just said, you know, that African-Americans have been the guinea pigs uh, for, for far too long. And uh, so it was met with strong opposition from everyone that spoke. So it'll, it, we'll see how it goes. And one more thing you're, you're, you've been working on this week, still working on today, is this uh, school supplies list from Jefferson County Public Schools. Uh, they're looking uh, to streamline the list where parents may not have to buy as many supplies at the beginning of the school year. That's right. The, there's several JCPS 
Jefferson County Public School teachers, uh, principals, and assistant superintendents are meeting and trying to devise a general uniform list that kind of just, just tells parents to buy just the necessities, paper, pens, notebooks, composition notebooks, things like that, instead of things, you know, some schools had lists that, that required $60 worth of school supplies with nap or, you know, hand sanitizer, uh, Kleenexes and things like that. And those are things that, that the school is kind to trying to uh, get the school to provide instead of the teachers. Uh, board member Chris Brady said he doesn't want to get to the point where we're, where we're funding the school on the backs of the parents. And that's interesting to say because, you know, the state auditor, Adam Edelin, had his recommendations that teachers didn't have enough money to, to support their, their classrooms. And a lot of teachers foot the bill for certain supplies as well. That's right. JCPS right now spends $140 per student, which is more than the state recommendation, but still there, there are some teachers that say they have to, to fork over some out-of-pocket money as well. All right. WFPL's uh, Jake Ryan covers education and just about every other topic for us. And, Jake, thanks for joining us here on Byline. Thank you, Rick. We'll be back with more in a moment. This is Byline on WFPL. Welcome back to Byline on WFPL. I'm Rick Howlett. It is time for our art segment, and Aaron Keene has joined us. Hi, Aaron. Hey, Rick. We're going to dive into Forecastle, of course, uh, here in just a couple of minutes, uh, but there are a few other things uh, going on uh, this weekend we want to talk about quickly. Uh, first, the literary series uh, Spalding at the Speed is uh, tonight. Yeah, this is a, um, a monthly reading series that the uh, Spalding University Master of Fine Arts program curates, and they have it at the local speed, um, the um, temporary Nulu outpost of the Speed Art Museum. Um, that's tonight. It starts at 6 p.m., and these are free readings. A whole slate of interesting authors are going to be there. Um, some of them include essayist and New Southerner editor Bobby Buchanan, um, novelist Kirby Gann, poet Deborah Kang-Dean. There's going to be playwrights, um, fiction, nonfiction, poetry as well. And uh, lots of activities this weekend at the Tim Faulkner Gallery. Yeah, this weekend we have some Chicago-based performance artists coming down. Um, Curtains is a musical act, uses a guitar pedal loop um, to kind of you know create some interesting sound textures. Um, they have a very psychedelic tone. Um, they're going to be accompanied by Chicago visual artist Ray Whitlock, who also creates a sort of um, psychedelic multimedia visual show that's going to be projected at the same time. So it's a little bit music, it's a little bit art, it's a whole lot Tim Faulkner. All right. Forecastle Festival on the waterfront, uh, getting underway as we speak uh, live and on the uh, uh, Friday afternoon. But uh, before we go into your conversation with Sean Cannon from WFPK about some of the uh, uh, musical bands, uh, musical acts that are going to be at Forecastle, uh, a few tips to share and a few new new amenities being offered this year. Well, Rick, as I'm looking out the window right now, yeah. the weather is looking <laughs> like it might be a little damp. So if you have some boots, I would go ahead and put those on because um, with that many people walking around Waterfront Park, even a sprinkle could turn into some mud by the middle of the evening. Um, so bring your rain gear, no umbrellas, but jackets and boots, definitely. Um, you know, there's free valet bike parking. At Forecastle. And so if you're local and you can bike and you don't want to deal with on-street parking, um, which is basically catch-as-catch-can, then that might be a great solution for you. Um, also, you definitely want to stay hydrated at these summer music festivals. And Forecastle has free water bottle refill stations set up throughout the grounds. So, um, you know, my tip is just to bring your refillable water bottle and keep it at your side all weekend long. Um, you can bring sunblock, but not the spray kind. 
Um, small backpacks, blankets, and towels are cool. Um, you can rent lockers this year if you have a lot of stuff that you want to carry around, but you don't want to have it with you all the time. I've done that at festivals before. It can be really handy. Um, and this is a good one. You know, your phone is going to get drained when you're out there Instagramming and texting all your friends to meet up. So you can rent these on-the-go mobile device chargers there on site that you just take around with you. You put a deposit, you rent it for the day, um, and you can charge your phone or what have you on it while you're watching a set so you don't have to go plug in somewhere to a wall. Pretty handy. And the forecastle continues to grow, possibly a record crowd this year. We're, we're thinking possibly. The headliners are all, um, you know, the pretty much the top tier of festival headlining acts this year. And um, Sean Cannon is my guest today. We sat down earlier in the week to talk about what's coming up music-wise at Forecastle. It is Forecastle weekend. It comes once a year. It's been getting bigger and bigger. And now Sean Cannon from WFPK is here with me to talk about um, the thing that Forecastle has now become, one of the genuine destination festivals in the summer festival music festival circuit. It's true, especially this year. Over the last few years, they've, they've definitely bulked things up. I really feel like this year most uh, mid-level music festivals under-delivered. And it made me nervous when Forecastle said they were going to announce their lineup because I thought, oh, no, every other festival's not that great this year. Mm. I, I was, I, my worries were completely unfounded. They over-delivered. They, they gave us their best, most action-packed lineup ever. Yeah, Ever. so well, let, let's get the headliners out of the way. Nobody, I think, needs to be told that um, it's a pretty amazing thing to see Outcast um, headline Friday night, Saturday night, Mr. Jack White, Band of Horses leading into him, and on Sunday, the one and only Beck. Has he ever played Louisville? I don't think so. Yeah, not in my aware memory. I mean, you to remember, you know, yeah, Beck's breakout album came out while we were still... right. I was in high school, you were probably in preschool, but um, so I haven't exactly kept close track of everything, but um, but definitely not in recent memory. Right, at least the first time in the last 10, 15 years Easily. or more. Yeah. And before that, leading into that, the replacements continue their amazing reunion tour. Um, for those of us who had always wanted to see Paul Westerberg and Tommy Stinson back together on stage, we, um, we have that opportunity. They've been doing it since last year, but they're bringing the show to Louisville also. That was the craziest part for me when I saw the lineup because, um, it, it, you know what, I, I almost feel like maybe I, I had a, a Nostradamus moment because when I saw that they were playing Coachella, I realized, oh, they're doing music festivals this year. Because, yes. they're, they're, you know, uh, it, it seemed like last year was it and they were done. But then as soon as they were announced for Coachella, I thought, oh, we're going to get them. Yeah. so I, on... I didn't actually believe it, <laughs> but I said it. Well, I think, you know, music festivals are, are a, it's, it's a nice little time slot. They don't have the, the big behemoth two-hour set at the end of the night. They don't have to anchor it, but they can go in. They've got a nice big crowd. People are there and they're ready to have fun. And you don't have to do all of the grueling tour, schlep in, schlep out one day, one city after the next, um, which is a nice way to kind of get yourself back in the swing of being a band. I did hear at um, that um, at Coachella, was it at Coachella where Paul Westerberg played his entire set on a couch? Yeah. yeah. So um, I don't have to, probably don't have to tell WFBL listeners that they need to see the replacements instead of, you know, if they're going to, if they're going to have the opportunity, but um, I will say that they are um, 
a, a foundational band in American post-punk pop um, that they basically coined, like the phrase was coined around their work. And that um, as they have grown, as they have matured as artists and as people, they, when they get back together, they have not lost that um, that sort of rebellious punk spirit and they have a great sense of humor. And so anything could happen. They could play an entire set of Motley Crue covers. Sean. I hope so. That could happen. That's a thing that could happen. So um, I would prefer to see them play Motley Crue songs more than Motley Crue, based on some of the reviews I've heard of their farewell tour. Ouch! But also, Sean, let's look at Friday, Saturday, and Sunday and hit some of our picks because you know, at any music festival, the great thing is the bounty of riches. You have so many different artists that you can choose from at any given time. Who are you most excited to see on Friday? On Friday today. I guess that's true. Jeez, man, it's just I know when you get ready for festival season, time. Lies. Uh, I, I think the band that I, I'm most interested in seeing, like most people, is Outcast. That said, there are plenty of others. Uh, one of the ones that, that I love the most is Old Baby. They're one of my favorite bands, not just in Louisville, because they're a local band, but one of my favorite bands, period. It's like um, it's like Nick Cave on more drugs. Nice. Not on drugs, on more drugs. I see. We'll run that statement by our legal department. Um <laughs> You know, one thing that I do like about Forecastle is that opportunity for Louisville bands to be playing in front of um, a lot of festival goers who are coming in from out of town. So it's one way to share the love. Um, you know, one band that I'm actually that I'm looking forward to um, during the day there is Saint Lucia. I mm. saw them, I believe, at Lollapalooza maybe last year. Um, just nice, like lush electro pop, um, really great late summer afternoon kind of chill out, maybe dance a little bit. It's good make out kind of music. You know, if you're if you're there with your best person and in the mood. Um, and then I don't think this is the thing. I don't think I can hang out for this long because I'm going to be working all day. But if um, for those who are late night owls, um, there is an extra show. This is separately ticketed, but um, St. Paul and the Broken Bones are playing at Headliners. Um, that's a 1.30 a.m. show. And I, you know, if you like uh, Stax sound, if you like old soul music, but you like it done by young guys who um, who are going to be sp- spry enough to do a three-hour set maybe into the wee hours possibly saint paul and the broken bones are that that's and guy. those guys uh are crazy too so even if you don't care for the stack sound even if that's not your thing you should still see saint paul and the broken bones because they put on a crazy show every time all right saturday what are we looking forward to well, Saturday, I'm going to, yeah, I've got a couple uh, that I really, really want to see. One being Spanish Gold. Yes. There is a local connection, you know, Patrick Callahan from My Morning Jackets in the band, but that's not, that's not why you should see them. You should see them because their music's good and because the songs that they write, sort of kind of southwestern tinged alt pop summer jams, are perfect for the afternoon, early evening. A beer or two or three or seven. It's a music festival. Uh, it, That's it, how Sean rolls. Uh, I said only seven. This isn't me. This is a normal person. So the thing is, it's it's just it's the perfect music for just sitting there like that, taking it in. And the fact that they played at Waterfront Wednesday but got rained out after four songs, I think, means that they're going to be even more amped to come back here and put on a great show. Unfinished business from Spanish Gold. I'll tell you, I'm really excited to see Jason Isbell because I have not managed to see him the last couple of times he's been in town, just scheduling issues. So one thing I love about Forecastle is so many of your favorite acts are right there on the Waterfront Park. Love that about a music festival. Um, if um, if you're only familiar with Jason Isbell from his time with Drive-By Truckers, you know enough about him already probably to be interested. <laughs> but, you know, once he moved out on his own, I feel like he really came into his own 
as um, as a pretty powerhouse songwriter. And now, after kind of a much publicized sobriety and recovery period, his um, his solo album Southeastern that came out last year was one of the year's best. So yeah, um, you know he's a he's a great player. He's a great stage presence. Expect a lot of good banter. Um, his wife Amanda Shires plays fiddle alongside him. So nice Americana sort of way to kind of cap off the late afternoon, go into the evening. He is amazing and has gotten so much better with age. Not just better. It's weird that this deep into your career, you're putting out your best music and you're playing your best shows. And the guy's 35. I mean, he's not 65. Come on. No, <laughs> like, but he's been doing it for so long. True. That he was the cer- baby face of yeah. the drive by truckers. At a certain yeah. point, you think that, you know, you run out of right. that weird, mystical, magical goo that you use to put over your songs and make them feel better. Yes. He doesn't. He's, he's got a lot of goo. All right. Let's quickly just wrap it up on Sunday. Um, I'm thinking Sharon Van Etten, of course. Of course. You know, she's been, um, I saw her open for Nick Cave at the Ryman. Ooh. Yeah, and I had never heard her before, and I really, bol- I, I, this was what like a year and a half ago or so, and I bolted to the hallway to buy to buy her LP. Um, I just thought she was she has such a presence, she has such a great voice, she's a really strong songwriting craft, and um, and she can command one of those big festival stages. Um, in the middle of daylight, I think, and really keep you spellbound. And so this latest album, she's getting a lot of attention for. So um, now is a great time to get in on the Sharon Van Etten action if you didn't know who she is. Yes. Double yes. That <laughs> I mean, that's one that I'm the, the most excited about, too, because her last couple of records have been amazing. This new one, is it, it marries her confidence as a songwriter with her newfound confidence as a uh, an instrumentalist mm. because the record is so much bigger, it's so much bolder. So when you hear her say big, bold things like she always has and you feel it, it makes it that much better. I think, though, the one I'm looking forward to the most is Lucius because the deal is uh, when you hear perfect live harmonies, it's like the clouds part. The hand of God comes down and touches you, gives you that third eye to see through the mist. That's what Lucius does. That's why you have to see them. They opened for Tegan and Sarah earlier this year, and they were so much fun also. So, yeah, that's true, too. Yes. Also fun. All right. Sean Cannon, thanks so much for helping me preview the Forecastle Festival, which opens today, this afternoon, and runs through Sunday evening on Waterfront Park. It was my pleasure. And we will have uh, team coverage of uh, Forecastle this weekend with photos and uh, updates from the Waterfront with Aaron Keene and uh, other members of the WFPL staff at WFPL and WFPL.org. That's all the time we have for today's program. Byline is produced by the WFPL News staff. Our production team is led by Laura Ellis and Brad Yost. And I'm Rick Helvet. Have a great weekend.